Hello and welcome to Shir Jashub, a Bible study program brought to you by the Fellowship of Shir Jashub Christian Tabernacle in Madison, Connecticut. This is Patty Scalzo inviting you to join me and my husband, Pastor Greg Scalzo, as we continue our study on heavenly authority. In today's broadcast, we will be focusing on some fascinating aspects in the life of God's servant Moses. So now, let's go into the study. I welcome our listeners to our Bible study on heavenly authority. We have been going through a background study on authority in the Old Testament. And in our last section, we examined the special and personal call of God on an individual's life. We saw how a true direct fellowship with the Lord and the authority which comes out of it was superior to that which comes from a lineage or regulated institution such as the Levitical priesthood. And we developed the next important principle to our study. That is that inherited or systematic authority based on regulations is on its own poorly lacking. While God works through organizations and peoples for a time establishing an institution or lineage, his preference is for individuals in eternal direct relationships with him. The Bible is a history of individual men and women called by God. And the blessing, Patty, is when such individuals who know their Lord and his personal will for each of their lives then come together under the Holy Spirit's guidance to form the Lord's body, his church. But we're getting ahead of our study. Returning to our background examination of the Old Testament, one such individual whom God worked powerfully through was Moses. Throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we will continue to notice this clear distinction between Moses, the man of God, and the Israelites, a people chosen by God. Moses had a unique upbringing and background, which we read about in the book of Exodus. In the New Testament, the disciple Stephen gives a wonderful summary of these things in Acts chapter 7. I'll start reading at verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up to his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So Moses grew up in the home of Pharaoh's daughter and was well-educated and powerful in both words and actions. And it is important to emphasize the event that occasioned Pharaoh's daughter drawing Moses as a baby out of that ark or basket that floated among the reeds of the Nile River and raising him as her son. The Israelite people had been in Egypt hundreds of years after Joseph and his brothers died. During this period, the Israelites multiplied greatly and grew mighty. The new king or pharaoh of Egypt who ascended the throne, who did not know Joseph or what Joseph had done for Egypt, was fearful of their numbers, so he placed them in hard bondage. But the more he afflicted them, the more they prospered. Finally, Pharaoh gave orders that no more male Hebrew babies should live. 
Exodus 1.22 states, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And it is for this reason that Moses' mother placed him in the basket and set him in the river and had his sister stand some distance off and watch to see what would become of him. She did it to save his life. And Patty, I emphasize this point because later on in our study of Moses, we will see a constant battle between Moses and some of his own Hebrew people who he has let out of bondage. They challenge his authority and look longingly back to Egypt, complaining and grumbling that they had left. Which is unthinkable, given that Pharaoh was having their boy babies killed. Exactly. When you study the life of Moses, it is amazing just what poor memories the people have. They consistently forget what went before and look only at the immediate problem. And because of this, they are unable to learn from history and think rationally about their situation. And sometimes you're tempted to say, how can it be? How could they forget the slavery and the slaying of the children? How could they forget the ten plagues? How could they forget the parting of the Red Sea? And how could they desire to go back? But I fear every day we see the same type of short-lived memory demonstrated right here in America. The American population seems not to be able to remember what happened even months before, let alone remembering the lessons taught by prior generations. In this day of instantaneous TV and mesmerizing media, there seems to be a refusal or inability to contemplate or learn from the past. And as a result, the country falls prey to corrupt personalities who practice situational ethics, who will argue one way today for selfish motives and argue 180 degrees the opposite point tomorrow for some other selfish motive and are never called on their inconsistencies. Because the people accept the spit of the moment. They are like brute animals not remembering what happened yesterday and certainly not remembering why this country was blessed by God. Even culturally there is this desire in academia and among the elite for the country to be moved beyond Christianity and Judeo-Christian principles. They forget the horror of what life is like back in Egypt, so to speak. They do not appreciate the blessing to society that has come from the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and from people who seek the holiness that is taught in the Bible. They do not appreciate how terrible life would be in a post-Christian or anti-Christian America. And too often the average person thinks only of their stomach and their finances and their situation right now today. They cannot remember yesterday and they cannot contemplate tomorrow. All rational thinking has gone away. And if innocent babies were being killed, it would not even concern them. Okay, let's get back to our study of Moses. Stephen continues in Acts chapter 7 verse 23. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian. 
in the second part of Moses' life, we see that he associates himself with his Israelite people, obviously jeopardizing his position as an Egyptian. Consider how much he was willing to lose. He risked the luxury and comfort of the palace and his prominence in Pharaoh's house. But the righteousness of the God of his people must have stood out in sharp contrast to the sins of Egypt. And it seems that Moses knew of God's promise to his people, the descendants of Abraham, for the Messiah. Moses regarded any reviling and disgrace which he might suffer for the cause of God and the sake of Messiah as more valuable than all the treasures of the Nile. We read the following in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So we begin to see the qualities necessary for someone who was called into a leadership role by the Lord. First, there must be the willingness to sacrifice and lay aside the things of this world for the sake of the things of God. Even as Abraham's first step was to leave his country and his home in obedience to God, both Abraham and Moses had higher sight, so to speak. They saw past the immediate earthly benefits of their current situations to a reward that would be eternal. As Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Second, notice that the person in leadership must have an understanding of and a desire for what is right. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Third, there is the shepherd's heart, the desire to protect God's people. When Moses sees one of his fellow Hebrews being beaten by the Egyptian, he can't help but intervene and come to the man's defense. Fourth, the person called into leadership will have a sense of that call. Even though Moses will not have the direct calling on Mount Horeb, until 40 years later when he is 80. Still Stephen tells us that when he struck down the Egyptian, he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses early on must have known that God preserved his life as an infant for a purpose, that God would use him to deliver his people. But the way God would ultimately utilize him at 80 was dramatically different than what Moses could have imagined at 40 years old. And when he initially, at 40, tries to help his people, Moses gets his first taste of the response of the masses to God-given authority, one that would become all too common to him later on as he led the Israelites in the wilderness, and one that has been familiar to ministers over the centuries. When this educated prince leaves the palace to help his enslaved people, when he defends the Hebrew by killing the Egyptian, and when he attempts the next day to break up a fight among two other Hebrews, appealing to their reason that they are companions and brothers, he receives this response. He who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Listen to the attitude behind what he's saying. 
Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Who are you to judge me? Don't tell me what's right and what's wrong. Do you think you're better than me? Aren't these attitudes and responses heard every day when the gospel is preached? Moses had risked everything for service to his people, and the response was not only a lack of respect for his position, but an implied threat of exposure that would endanger his life, and so Moses had to flee the land. Stephen continues the narrative of Moses' life by saying in Acts chapter 7, verse 35, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. We are so happy that you were able to join us for our study today. We love to hear from our listening audience, so if you have any comments or words of encouragement, please send them along to us. Also, may I ask you to prayerfully consider supporting our church's evangelical outreach. Please send all correspondence and donations to Shear Jashub Christian Tabernacle, Post Office Box 518, Branford, Connecticut 06405. We would also like to extend an invitation for you to join us for Sunday service if you will be in the Madison, Connecticut area. Sheer Jashub Christian Tabernacle meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the upper room of the Memorial Hall on Meeting House Lane in Madison, Connecticut. Take I-95 to exit 61. Go south to Route 1. Turn right, and at the next light, turn right again. Please join us for our next broadcast of Sheer Jashub.